Hi, Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist. Welcome to episode 393. Continuing on our period styles of architecture, art, decorative arts, uh, we're going to talk about, we're going to divide this into two sections, the British Victorian and the American Victorian. So the British Victorian, 1837 to 1901. So one-third of the houses in Britain date from before 1914, and most by far are typically Victorian. The building boom experienced in the cities in the 1850s, 60s, and 70s has been exceeded only by the ribbon developments of the 1920s and 30s. The British High Victorian style grew out of rivals of the past. Fashionable Victorian town dwellers were bored by the monotonous classical terraces rows of plain Georgian houses, by now encrusted in soot and grime all across England. They wanted color and animation. Such feelings were not be peculiar to the landed gentry. In a period of industrialization, there was a new generation of nouveau riche, self-made industrialists boastful of their success, who in the architecture of their houses advertised their achievements in tangible form. Many favored the mock Gothic style as a romantic fantasy that implied ancient lineage. The Gothic revival had developed from the 18th century and was boosted in the 19th by the chivalric writings of Sir Walter Scott, Alfred Lord Tennyson, and Thomas Love Peacock. Diligent archaeological researches were carried out and published with measured drawings of medieval remains in the manner of the surveys of classical ruins of 100 years before. The influential theorist and designer A.W.N. Pugin and some of his contemporaries tried to encourage architects to adopt accurate Gothic detailing, <coughs> stripped polychromatic brickwork, popularized by G.E. John Ruskin in the St Stories of Venice, added color to, to the Gothicized exteriors. The vogue for Gothic left its mark not only on many country houses and villas, but also on the whole of the suburbs, such as those north of Oxford. It also brought great controversy, the so-called Battle of Styles, to major public buildings. These were projects such as the new Houses of Parliament, which were Gothic, and the Foreign Office, which was done in the classical style. In 1879, William Young, in his book Town and Country Mansions, records the Gothicist belief in that classical architecture, the convenience of the plan and utility of the arrangement were sacrificed to the architectural effect too often, instead of the design growing out of the plan. The plan was adapted for the, the sake of the elevation. Pew saw Gothic as pliable and classical as rigid. Speculative builders were uninterested in such academic niceties. They often randomly adopted elements of several styles, including Greek Revival, Romanesque, Tudor, Elizabethan, and Italianate. A house could have half-timbered gables, classical sash windows, red brick and terracotta ornament, and a filigree of cast iron porch. A true picture of the Victorian house was taken two extremes. On the one hand, the wonderfully innovative country houses 
by great architects such as Richard Norman Shaw. On the other, the meanly built, flat-fronted terrace rows of the poor. So between these poles, there are various identifiable types. The early Victorian semi-detached village based on Regency models, the detached Italianate suburban villa with stuccoed ground floor, which was popular in the 1830s and 40s, and the detached brick villa with asymmetrical plan and Tudor detailing. The need for services and for privacy expanded the size of the upper middle class, Victorian terraced row house, to unprecedented height and depth. This impression of stuccoed giantism is striking in such London areas as Belvada, Bayswater, and Pimlico. The grand classical terrace enjoyed a last blooming in Glasgow with the work of Alexander Thomason, especially his Great Western Terrace of 1869. By the 1880s, the trend towards suburban and royal dwellings among the upper middle class had caused the terrace road to become declassed. It was now associated with the lower orders of society, while the better off tended to live in the, quote, villas. So at the end of the 1860s, correct English Gothic returned to favor. At the same time, the lighter, higher, influential Queen Anne revival style was initiated. Its distinctive features include white-painted sash windows, pretty balconies, curly gables, and molded brickwork or terracotta. There are some fine streets in the style around Sloan and Cadogan squares in London. Improvements in accommodations had a big impact on Victorian house building. The rapid expanding building trade kept up to date with periodicals such as The Builder and The Building News, both founded in the middle of the century. Well-established building construction books were widely available and could be purchased in installments by the less well-off tradesmen. Particularly popular, popular were the builder's practical director, the Encyclopedia of Practical Carpentry and Practical Masonry, all published between 1855 and 1870, with tinted plates and fold-out uh, three-dimensional uh, figures of drawings at times. Industrialization, of course, implied mass production, the canals and railways enabled heavy materials to be widely and economically distributed throughout the countryside. Cast iron from Scotland, terracotta from the English Midlands, and the southwest peninsula, slates from Wales and Cumbria. No longer were houses necessarily built of the local vernacular materials, as had been usual in the past. Glass and bricks were less expensive than ever before. Identical terracotta ornament graced exteriors from Scotland to the southwest of England. By the, seven, or the 1870s, a new middleman took entire stage in the burgeoning building industry, the builder's merchant. He acted as an agent for the manufacturer, supplying to the builder everything from kitchen ranges to doorknobs, illustrated in splendid catalogs which today give a fascinating insight into the late Victorian house and how it developed. Health and efficiency were both great interests to the middle-class Victorians, as reflected by the catalogs. Descriptions of improved sanitary wares. Ventilation was also important to them, not only as a way to clear smells from the defective drains, 
but also to take away the noxious fumes from gas, gas lighters and fires. The great scientist Robert Boyle founded a prosperous company manufacturing and installing ventilation equipment that led to innumerable cows and rooftops, often disguised as turrets or belfries. Cleaner air was one of the benefits enjoyed by the thousands who left the cities and penetrated further and further into the countryside in search of salubrious and affordable housing from which they could commute to work by railway. Nostalgia for the countryside fused with the concept of suburbia to form a new ideal, the garden suburb, heralded in the 1870s by Bedford Park in West London, where individuality, individual styles of houses brought a welcome variety to its leafy-lined streets. Inside the house, the organization of rooms reflected a clearly defined social order. There were the public rooms where guests were received and entertained, the public bedrooms and dressing rooms, and the, the below-stairs servants' rooms, which for the first time were virtually out of bounds to the family. Such gradations were expressed architecturally, for example, in the complexity of moldings and in the material of the fireplace, ranging from marble through slate to wood. The morning room at the back of the house was the feminine equivalent of the study, which was a masculine domain at that time, as well as the dining room. Larger houses would have their own breakfast room. Even in the poorest houses, there would be an attempt to maintain a parlor, which often had a <coughs> unlivable air as if wanting a guest important enough to justify its use. So the parlor never got a lot of use uh, in general. Let's talk about doors in that British Victorian era. So the porch to a Victorian house was designed not only to protect the visitors from the weather, but also to convey the social status of its occupants. A projecting porch implied greater wealth than one was able, than one, that one was recessed, essentially. Front doors are paneled and sometimes arched in the Gothic style. They were often green or wood-grained. Glazed upper panels or fanlights above allow extra light to enter the hallway. Foundry catalogs were filled with examples of door knockers and knobs and, from the 1840s, letter boxes and even mail slots. The Victorians felt it important to insulate their houses against the cold. In smaller terraced houses, where there is usually an archway across the narrow hall, it was the convention to hang curtains in order to retain heat. On a similar basis, a portiere or curtain on a swinging pole could hang behind the door to make the, door, the room quite much warmer. Internal doors are constructed in the traditional frame and panel manner. Doors leading to the grander principal rooms can be up to three inches thick with continuous panels and applied moldings. Such features not only indicate the room's importance, but the greater the density of the wood, the more effective it was as protection against eavesdropping servants. So doors to more modest rooms are often framed in wood less than one inch thick, with the very thin, undecorated panels abounding in fielded areas. So let's talk about the windows of the British Victorian era or, or time. Improved glassmaking techniques produced larger, stronger, and less expensive single panes of glass, which needed fewer glazing bars. 
As Victorian sash windows became plainer, so their openings make increasing use of decorative brickwork, stucco, and prefabricated terracotta. By the mid-19th century, sash windows have two smaller brackets or horns at each end of the bottoms of the rail and at the top of the sash. These are to help strengthen the frame and support the heavier panes of glass incurred. The abolition of the window tax in 1851 encouraged the great use of glass, and the bay window with its wide center sash and two narrow lights on either side is a characteristic feature. Some later sash windows have small panes of glass and thick glazing bars forming the top to cut down glare from the sky with a single sheet of glass below. Casements, often using leaded lights, return during this period, especially in the Gothic style. Windows or the Tudor square-headed in modest houses. In grander houses, the decorative tracery at the tops of the arch windows reduce the amount of sunlight, thus protecting interiors and furnishings from fading. On sashes, exterior blinds serve the same purpose. Speculative builders keen to incorporate the Gothic patterns popularized by John Ruskin's The Stones of Venice in 1851, as we just previously mentioned, inserted sash or casement windows to rectangular openings with an arch fashioned out of multicolored brickwork. Walls of the British Victorian style or era. Throughout the Victorian period, it was still the convention to think of walls as being made up of three basic elements, a floor, a dado, and chair rail. The dado to picture rail or architrave level and architrave level to the ceiling level, including the cornice. Halls and studies are often paneled, as are the dining rooms of grand houses, where the dark wood provided an impressive backdrop to the inevitable collection of gilt frame oil paintings. The drawing room, regarded as the ladies' room and used for taking tea, would have had lighter wall decorations. Wallpaper began to be produced in rolls. A marble design became popular for entrance halls. A robust embossed wall covering, lincrusta, was introduced in 1877 for use below the dado rail. And a decade later, a less expensive version, anaglopta, with a wood pattern relief became popular. A limited range of these leather papers, originally they were imitations of the 17th century leather wall hangings, is still available today. Freeze papers were supplied in strips, sometimes with additional stenciling. Until late in the century, it was necessary to mix paint pigment with white oil and lead. The oil tended to darken in color. The application was difficult. Distemper was a less costly but again, often difficult to apply and was much less durable as a paint. The ceilings. The ceilings of larger Victorian houses offered plasters great opportunities to demonstrate their skills. Elaborate swags, ribs, flowers, and festoons showed evidence of their talents, as did the intricate patterns of the cornices. In the best rooms, gasoliers hung from ornate ceiling roses and medallions, which would sometimes double as ventilators. 
ceilings tended to be high as they encouraged improved air circulation. More modest houses have a plain molded cornice and a simple central rose medallion. A pattern book produced in 1892 by George and Maurice Adsley shows large and impressive stenciled corner designs, but these were not widely employed because the amount of dirt which collected on ceilings, largely due to the use of oil and gas lamps, made frequent redecoration an extreme necessity. Fibrous plaster was patented in 1856. This contained canvas as a reinforcing agent, enabled large precast plaster panels to be molded and then nailed in position on site. Elaborate cornices, roses, and medallions, and other features could be made by the same method. Paper mache and composition were acceptable alternatives. A compressed, lightweight, molded wallpaper was immensely popular for adding texture to plain ceilings and became an inexpensive substitute for fibrous plaster. The floors. The modest Victorian houses are usually plain <coughs> pine floorboards. It was customary to cover them with rugs to stain and polish the exposed surround with beeswax and turpentine. Parkentry, parquetry were small pieces of different colored hardwoods are laid in geometric patterns, was also popular as a border to a central carpeted area. Sometimes, when a single carpet was laid, a stencil imitating parquetry could be applied to the board surround. An inexpensive substitute for carpets was floor cloth. This was a form of canvas sheeting which was printed to simulate rug patterns. Parquet or tiling. It was easy to clean and often used in servants' rooms. Linoleum, introduced with much less success in the latter half of the century, was a more durable alternative to floor cloth. It was made from compressed cork and linseed oil mounted on a stout canvas backing. Again, it was often designed to simulate other superior floor finishes, such as parquet, but it was considered better taste to have plain linoleum in brown or green. Hall floors are usually tiled with decorative encaustic tiles laid in a geometric pattern. The two foremost commercial suppliers were Minton and Mall. Both offered a great variety of patterns. Stone flags or plain red quarry tiles are found in kitchens. So we're going to uh, take a halfway break. Uh, Greg Perry, the historic preservationist, uh, talking about the British Victorian style. Thanks for listening. <music>